Hello everyone, welcome back to Left Page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. I am joined, as always, by my good friend and political scientist, Leon. Hello, Leon. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I am very excited for us to do a kind of special, first special for, for the Left Page, because uh, we're talking about a book that, uh, well, it's coming out today by the time this episode is released. We are talking about the excellent novel The Knowing by Emma Hines with Emma herself. Hello, Emma. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't know for Frank, but um, this is the first time for me to actually talk to the actual author of a, of a book. Oh really? Uh, oh, well, that's yeah, such fun. yeah. I joined Frank a year and a half ago, and uh, ever ever since I've been <laughs> I've been mainly focusing on the books that I really like <laughs> to talk about. Yeah. So this has been uh, to to have one offered to us, and like um, once again, I get to talk a chance to talk with an actual author of the book. Uh, we had a yeah. very lovely conversation with someone who translates books, which is also really fun. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time for me that like uh, I actually talked to the author of a book, which is yeah uh, a nice way to start off the year. I will just say. Oh that. yeah, no, great oh, episode yeah. to start off. <laughs> it's great to be here with you guys as well. I feel like we're uh, almost like distantly related in a sense because uh, my partner is horror vanguard so you guys have have hung out virtually or in the online space so much i feel like i know you already which is quite fun <laughs> oh no uh same yeah there's there's a nice how do i say degree of proximity uh that sounds <laughs> so cold actually never mind you, you said it way lovelier i'm so sorry i'll just shut up <laughs> It's great to, to have you on it and to talk about this book uh, like this. Like it's such a it's such an honor, really, to be able to read it before it came it came out and uh, be able to make an episode out of it. It's great. Yeah, it's been crazy seeing people. You know, it sounds really strange, but um, I'm a debut novelist, so this is my first book out in the real world, and it's very strange to see people reading it, even oh, yeah. though. That was always the idea. Um, it was, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was exactly what I wanted it to be. But um, yeah, have, seeing, having people read with it and engage with it and seeing people posting about it online on Instagram and things like that has been really, really cool. Um, and it's been fun as part of the PR and kind of press press element of the book to be able to talk to people about, about it as well, which is um, I'm getting better at talking about things I have written and this is definitely good practice for that. Oh, yeah. We're happy to help. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're all part of my journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No, definitely. No, I I can that that sounds oddly eerie and familiar to like do a thing and plan out and work hard on the thing and then actually have to realize like, oh no wait, that's somehow huh. Why is that the weird part? That that sounds very familiar to me in on multiple levels, <laughs> even though I've never written a book. But yeah. <laughs> to see like a thing manifested in like the material world, so to speak, mm. um, that that's weird. That that's <laughs> that creeps me out a little bit. So yeah, yeah I, I totally get that. Um, mm. And it's not even out yet, for that matter. So you know, it might even get weirder for you. Uh, I, it's starting to get weird because uh, obviously <laughs> a lot of things 
have been planned in terms of like PR and promotion, you know, coming on here with you guys and and going on different programs and uh, and seeing writing different pieces for different publications. But now there's starting to be stuff that we didn't plan that's just naturally kind of generated um, oh, that's PR awesome. and interactions, which is so good, but it's also a bit unsettling because <laughs> it's realizing that you've kind of uh, Frankensteined this thing together and now it's off out in the world learning its own language and preparing to burn down villages maybe you don't know you don't know what it's going to do now it's out of my control um that would be the worst version obviously of what a book can do in society is uh, be a frankenstein's monster but um yeah i don't <laughs> think my book is that hopefully it's a good <laughs> metaphor though no, it's just we love Mary Shelley. We've got to love Mary Shelley. Oh, obviously. Totally. <laughs> I don't trust people who don't like Frankenstein. So that's <laughs> that's a good rule. There's a rule, rule of thumb, if you will. No, yeah. it, it's better than what I had to say, which is what's like uh, a f- the, fr- the fear of getting to know the knowing, which is just a sh- shit word mm. joke. But, uh, that's <laughs> there is a little bit of fear in that. <laughs> <laughs> had to do it. Yes. Had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> just, you know. I know it's not cover quote material, but there you go, dear listener. That's uh, that's all I have, really. <laughs> so uh, let's, uh, do you guys, uh, I mean, Emma, do you want to do the honors of telling us what the book is about? Since or... we're the lucky ones who have been able to read it and we want other people oh, to yeah, read it definitely. too. Okay, this is my blurb that I prepared. Ooh. Oh, that's great. So here we go. Go for it. Uh, the Knowing is a sapphic historical gothic fiction about Flora, a queer t- tattooed mystic living in the slums of New York and Manchester during the late 19th century who can see ghosts and communicate with the dead through the power of tarot. Oh, okay. Ta-da! <laughs> That's <laughs> all you need to know. No, that, that is indeed the uh, bare bones. For me, uh, I would add on to it, is that it is uh, a book that's, <laughs> that doesn't spare on the emotional front of things so it's not a book for the lighthearted, if that's okay for me to say emma it's oh 100 percent. we have a trigger warning in the front of it oh, yeah. for a reason yeah absolutely uh, thank you which reminds us to also maybe quickly, oh, yeah. <laughs> um before we get into the meat of things which is something we need to get better at by the way but that's not here there uh content warning for like those for the people that um this book and maybe therefore also the subsequent episode slash discussion we're going to have on it is indeed uh, is potentially going to reference uh, sexual violence and also substance abuse. I would say that those are the two. Uh, the biggest uh, ones. I don't know if don- donors is the right word, but, uh, you know, the, the two most prominent challenges anyone that's sensitive to these topics can face. Yeah, a hundred percent. I would say those. That's an adequate tagging that you've done right there of, of um, trigger warnings. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I was wondering, uh, maybe that that's something where uh, we can start off with, like, like is uh, like the emotionally graphic and the emotionally intense type of fiction that you yourself are drawn to, or is that like an inspiration for you, or is that? Oh how yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, dark creepy emotionally <laughs> distressing the kind of thing that gives you nightmares um yeah definitely <laughs> which is ironic uh because as you guys know my partner is is horror vanguard and watches a lot of horror movies and engages with horror criticism um and i, I can't watch horror movies oh, but really? i can write horrific things wow. <laughs> easily without even without 
yeah, feeling any pain towards the the characters I'm torturing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know why. It's just one of one of those things. Um, I've always been drawn to macabre stories, um, starting with like more classic Gothic literature, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, um, Dracula, Frankenstein, oh, yeah. and then moving into sort of like your con- sort of the contemporary classics like Beloved and um and all of that going through through that and now more contemporary gothic particularly like sarah waters pat barker those are oh, yeah. big big inspirations for me so yeah kirsty logan she's fantastic british queer writer does amazing things with queer and the gothic and and if you like if you like magical realism and you like strange things and you like everything to be a little bit gay, then Kirsty Logan is a writer that you need to spend some time with. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta have a little bit of gay in there. That's the secret ingredient to break it all together, make it all gel well, if you will. So. Oh yeah, yeah. If it's not a little bit gay, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> no, it's really funny because um, uh, my co-host uh, also is very interested in the gothic uh, and is very interested in. Uh, once again, the scary, the unknown, and the magical elements of all things. And all, I would say, feel free to correct me here, friend. Mm-hmm. But um, also, you're interested in the in in the queer side of things, but also can't stand to watch horror movies. So it's a fun little <laughs> synergy we have going here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like the reading is more tolerable for me, but like I cannot watch it. So you know, p- perfect match here with books. So you know, it all turned yeah. out well. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a real difference because I, I can even read horror movie scripts mm. that's fine yeah. but just the visual i suppose there's an element of control in when you are reading something on oh. the page you are doing it to yourself rather than having something done to you which is sort of what happens in the in when you're watching something you are I, I guess if to me it feels to read something on a page feels more active than to watch something on a screen. Although, even though it's how I feel, it's not something that necessarily carries over into my belief about how these mediums work. Because obviously, I, I write theatre yeah. as well, and my experience of writing theatre is that it's a very it's a synergy between the audience and the writer and the players. So, um, yeah. It's it's just one of those weird things, isn't it? It's how you feel about something compared to what you actually think about something. <laughs> no, totally. I, I think that's definitely such an interesting conceptualization to have about. Well, let's just call it art, I suppose. Like that's like <laughs> a great <laughs> umbrella term. If anything else, it's quite a couple other things as well. But you know, um, I do think that's you know, I think it's very important to. Uh, it's gonna sound so pretentious, and I'm so sorry, but it's very important to note yourself um, and like all, all the all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I do, I do think that that like you know, you have to kind of uh, know what you're capable of, and and I feel like if you do that, you can in, you'll find yourself enjoying art so much more. And maybe that's just my experience of it. I don't know. That's uh... yeah, I think it's so important, especially when if you are dealing with topics which are hard or taboo. Oh, yeah or emotionally trying that you are aware of what you can deal with and what you can and how you enjoy art because uh, having seen the way that people interact with horror so often it's something that brings them incredible joy but for people who don't interact with horror they sometimes see that as something negative that's being done to them 
but there's there's, there's a consent process involved in all of it isn't there you know if you look at um Mm -hmm. you know tell me i'm worthless which is such a a scary gothic book it's something that does involve a consent process between the writer and the reader like you have chosen to read this and involve yourself in the lives of these characters and whatever trauma they have um and that can be quite a fulfilling process for people to to have in themselves even people who've been victims of the kind of trauma that is represented in these kind of books yeah definitely um i i found this like something that i quite admire actually about the book is how well you navigate the different segments of the individual experience of trauma but then also very seamlessly related to a more broader social scope, which is something that I find quite lacking in a lot of contemporary fiction. It's that it's always either very heavily focused on the individual with a very negligence for a broader social context. I don't know if that's something uh, you did consciously. Yeah, I, think so. I don't know if it's, I could say that, I wish I could say that it was conscious because <laughs> then I would probably sound a lot smarter than I am. Um, but I think... It's. It would be hard not to engage with it given the time period that it's set in. Precisely. So the novel's set in the late 1800s, which is not a period that is known particularly for um, for not traumatizing women. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And also the spaces in which my characters move. So they move in spaces where there is a lot of. Uh, n- they're not sheltered in any way. My characters. Yeah from the worst things that are available to life they they are people who uh have like experiences with you know prostitution and with um with abusive men and they don't have the kind of money that would provide a shield at that period of time so um although disclaimer obviously being wealthy in the late 1800s did not protect a woman from any kind of trauma uh, but it could protect her some of the way against some yeah. of the traumas that my characters experience. So I think it was it would have been sh- to write the book without the social context around them as women in the world they're living in would sort of be, have been to write the book half or to only write a portion of it. Um, it wouldn't have worked, I don't think. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've i said this on like, uh, I'm sorry, dear listener, to repeat myself, but just for the current context that we're engaging with, I had to do some research for something that, uh, well, I, I won't get into it, but I did some research on how like women were treated, especially in the time of the interbellum period in the UK, the, uh, like once again, mm. between World War One and World War Two, and just like only the section of how abortions went around that time was is, is enough to still give me nightmares. And yeah. so I... <laughs> When when we uh, when I react very bluntly to like oh when we're not treated very well I'm sorry to listen but it's either that or I cry so and I'm not a really pretty crier so I'll just you know I'm sorry if that comes across as insensitive to some people but honestly this is the best <laughs> deal you're going to get I'm so sorry but uh, yeah so and, and based <laughs> on what I knew uh, from like that period which is still very similar I would say in in like the way people were treated or mainly women were treated. Uh, it's still very similar to like the late 1800s i feel is uh is well there's there's some once again some very broad overlapping that being said i would still also argue that uh our current way of treating women is still very oh it has not changed in any uh yeah. structurally at the very least has changed very little 
we dress it up nicer, maybe. <laughs> there, there are a lot of people who are responding to the book with a, a sense of innate understanding oh, because, yeah. uh, you know, an assault is an assault in whatever century it occurs. Um, but I think it was important for me whilst to like not flinch away from the horrors of the society that they find themselves in because it is a gothic book and I and so the, the gothic is about exposing the horror of society mm-hmm. oh, yeah. you know, that's, that's what it does that's why we love it I also wanted to make sure that it's not just all terrible you know yeah. it's not one of a, not a book that's just there to make uh, make you go oh history was so bad and so awful and how how good we have it now um it they they're supposed to feel like real characters who had their own their own life and their own independence and were living through something that is very difficult, but they were living through it, um, which I think is yeah. important. Definitely, it's very funny because in December we just talked about uh, like dark academia and like my issue with dark academia is that not so much the genre itself, but the fan base surrounding it, intensely romanticizing exactly this time period and also other time periods. <laughs> And I feel this yeah. book starts a beautiful balance oh. between exactly what you just said. Yeah, I listened to your episode. Yeah, I really oh, enjoyed thank it. You so much. Um, thank you. I do. I do think it's interesting um, in terms of like romanticizing. Yeah, I think it's it's complicated to romanticize the Victorians. Very complicated. Um, what I found most difficult is people romanticizing P.T. Barnum. Um, mm-hmm. Whilst I was writing this book, The Greatest Showman came out. Yeah, and I was the most grouchy I've probably <laughs> ever been. Because every, whenever I said, oh yeah, I'm writing this book, it's about freak show performers in New York and Manchester, they'd say, oh, have you seen The Greatest Showman? And I would say, P.T. Barnum was a nightmare. Yeah, He was an absolute <laughs> nightmare who took advantage of people, of disabled people and people from other cultures, made money off them and was, yeah, just awful, awful person. And everyone's like, oh, but the songs are so good. <laughs> yes. Like a complete disconnect with reality, uh, just focusing on immediate enjoyment, and yeah, that's that's something we yeah. definitely uh, talk quite talk uh, quite a bit about. And uh, I'm happy, yeah, I'm really happy you understand. And there, there it's not just us because I, we all are like a little bit treated, and I'm sorry to put it in such a vulgar way, but we're always treated like a dog that took like a shit on the carpet for like talking about actual history. <laughs> and, and like, but, but why? And, like, yeah. It's actual history. It happened. And it's, it's always yeah. fine until like, I, I, I would like, if, if I'm talking to somebody that I know, I would like, okay, well, what if I, and then I reference to something painful that they went through. Like, what if I would make a movie about that? And you know, the person that did that to you and they're like, okay, no, that's not, that's not, Great though, but it's long ago. Like, okay, well, that's that's also really murky waters. Like, how long is long ago? And so, this is always a discussion that degenerates so fast in meaningfulness. So, yeah, I'm really mm. happy that uh, you have a solid grasp on that. Yeah, I mean, Barnum was a complicated man and a complicated character, and I I did enjoy researching him because um, I think my character Minnie has a bit of Barnum in her in that in that oh, yeah. way. She is manipulative and. Uh, she is thinking about her own future primarily rather than sort of the social good around her. Um, but yeah, he's, he was, he was a really bad person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and not at all like Hugh Jackman. And um, yeah. I think, 
<laughs> one day uh, people are sort of going to look at it. But yeah, it was so long ago that people um, people don't think about that. And the people who he hurt are dead. So, you know. I do appreciate very much in the book. And uh, I'll, I think in general, we'll, we'll try and avoid like deep spoilers because, you know, we, we want people to read the book uh, and most people couldn't have yet. Yeah. But one thing I really appreciate is how, you know, oh, but we're not, we're not like P.T. Barnum. We're trying to do something different, give you an opportunity. But mm. those relationships are still complicated and not very good. And I really appreciate how, mm. how that shows up in the book. That it's like, you know, we're, we're not trying to do what he does, but does it work? Yeah, I think there's a complication in, in... The, at the core of Minnie, there's a complication, which is that she doesn't want to be the person who's being taken advantage of. So she takes advantages of other people, but she thinks because she's the one doing it, exactly. then it's better. Oh, yeah. Right? She is, she is a disabled performer, so she has the right to represent herself on stage. Does she have the right to do what Barnum does to his performers, to her performers? I don't know. I don't know if she does, but she feels like she does, I think. Um, but yeah, no spoilers. No, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> no I think that, well, that that's a kind of um, the strongest point of continuation between this time and, and uh, contemporary time. Oh, that time and contemporary time is that, well, <laughs> I'm so sorry to go here again, dear listener. But once again, it's, it's how uh, capitalism functions to inaliate certain groups of people, especially, I would argue, the sex worker, and then especially, especially the disabled sex worker. It's, uh, I think that's something that's definitely, like, very strongly present in our uh, day. I, once again, I'm so sorry, once again, dear listener, to talk about this yet again, but just for, so, for the people who haven't listened to it, um, the very little bit of social science that I have done was also to focus on uh, sex work here in Amsterdam, where I live. And mm -hmm. just to be faced with the severity of this certain situations that even within the legal circuit, even within the above, uh, above water type uh, dimension of sex work, the, uh, <laughs> the situations can be so severe. And the age at which some of these people, uh, mainly women, start is a horrifying. And then also, and I'm sorry to use this term, but they don't have a transferable set of skills, which when which is fine by me. But capitalism feels very strongly about not having different uh, transferable skills. So I think this book fairly beautifully, well, <laughs> beautifully, uh, beautifully depicts the <laughs> very ugly dimension of. Uh, also the sexual work element of uh, the situation. Yeah, I think sex work is such an interesting thing to talk about in the oh, Victorian yeah. era um, because obviously you had sex work, but also uh, because of like the rise of uh, photographic pornography and what that kind of did for sex work in general. And also freak shows which feature in the knowing are an extension of sex work in yeah. so many ways yeah. because often the performers uh, would be unclothed in to show off their disability or their strangeness or or their uh, their race if they were a particular type of race so it is um, an extension in that way of the the fetishizing of the body um, so it's a very interesting time to look because I think 
where we find ourselves today with regards to how sex workers are treated in society probably comes a lot from this period of history. Oh, yeah. I think I, I'm my book that I'm currently writing right now is um, set in the 1500s. And I think in a way, the attitude towards sex work then was a bit different. Um, like it was more um, seen as a way that women could earn and, and could earn well. Whereas I think by the time it got to the Victorian era, things were, were changing slightly, which is why I really enjoyed writing Kate DeWoods, who is uh, a character in the book, who is was a historical madam in New York City mm -hmm. at that time period. So Hotel de Woods, which features in the book, was a real brothel that oh. was run by Kate, who was a real madam. And she was uh, she made an awful lot of money for herself as an independent female working in that space. So I, I liked her story as, you know, in, in a world where women are so often losing a certain, a huge percentage of their income to men, in sex work i liked having kate there as a woman who is making so much money off men for for her her income but is also she is conflicting because she makes a lot of money off women in an unfair way as well so is it is it better when it's a woman yeah. doing the unfair capitalism basically <laughs> yeah. you know is it is it better or is it or is it the same and what difference does it make to the people lower down in the in the scales of things so i liked that kind of contrast yeah how re these relationships continue on replicating themselves or not or how they change or don't it's it's very interesting how how yeah. they show up in a book yeah definitely i i find it very interesting um and once again feel free to not engage with this if you if you don't want to but <laughs> i find it very interesting how um or thing better that i really like about the book is that it is very different from your uh, standard uh, bourgeois slash white feminism approach to women's suffering. It, it once again, it zooms really into the ugliness of it without uh, without abandoning the broader social context of like uh, issues of race, uh, issues of whatever. Um, well, whatever sounds a bit crude. I'm so sorry. Uh, other issues that were also very much going on at the same time. And I do feel like uh, a lot of, uh, once again, bourgeois feminist ideals mainly s uh, focus, zoom in very closely on the uh, white woman's struggle, which is, once again, a, a real thing, but only like focuses on that. And that, that always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think you navigate that quite beautifully, actually, with constantly, you know, shining light on other things. I think it's mostly because I chose characters who I was very interested in. Yeah. Um, and I think it helped as well that um, the characters I chose are from very different levels of society to what we usually see when we hear Victorian stories. Mm -hmm. So when we hear Victorian stories, we very often hear Victorian stories of a certain level of class. So like middle class or upper class. And that's partly because that's what that's what survived. Um, those are the stories that are most popular, maybe. Um, everybody likes a story about wealth, for instance. Yeah. Um, but by having Flora and Minnie um, and Abernathy all be from a social level, which is a very uh, lo low social level. And in Flora's case, you know, she starts literally at the bottom rung of society in Five Points in New York as a slum child, making money off 
street street performing basically you know turning cards uh for coins um it meant that it just opened up a different world than what is often presented of fine drawing rooms and i do interact with that in the book like flora does move um but it meant she is moving through different spaces and different echelons of society so you get to see more of it which is more fun hopefully for the reader but also <laughs> a lot more fun for me to write <laughs> yeah 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 I, i was wondering since uh my mother is of uh my mother is romani uh, i was wondering was there is there any like inspiration on that front uh, for you like to write about that group of uh people since it's always very difficult to navigate that with tarot especially there's like a whole history there i don't know if you want to like specify mm. anything about that or that's comfortable something yeah i mean i knew that uh the idea started with with ghosts more than with tarot yeah but then when i started looking into this connection to uh bt barnum and the and the circus slash freak show world i saw how important mysticism was for in the victorian era and i was really interested in that in the mystical aspect and for a lot of the performances of mysticism that existed during the victorian era uh they used tarot as kind of a baseline to get to get into that there's lots of tarot card readers and so i wanted the tarot to come from a genuine place and for me that involved researching you know the roots of tarot and where does tarot come from and how do, where did the first tarot decks emerge in in italy in romania and then i was looking into new york at the time period and looking at who was actually living there so who were who was making up the immigrant community in five points at the time that i was writing and there was a huge amount of irish yeah um and but there were also a lot of of romanian and uh and some german and so it it made these links worked well together i wanted it to feel like it was rooted in a historical possibility that actually there could have been a young girl who was a who was uh an immigrant from that community who um had been taught these things by her by somebody who was of her community and then sort of grown up with them So I wanted it to feel rooted in what was possible for New York at the time period that I was writing. So it was more about historical grounding for everything that I wanted for the book to come forward. And I hope that I've done a good job with it <laughs> with my research basically. Yeah, no, I I think there's definitely I mean it's just really nice to know that um we I'm interacting with an author that <laughs> doesn't look for cheap sensationalism, which is sadly that something that uh once once again especially romani people i think in victorian fiction fall prey to by uh like you know uh white europeans and i don't know it, it was really nice to like just not be very worried about that for for like a couple seconds if anything so that's uh, that's good i think flora in a way unfortunately because of when the book opens you i'm not giving any spoilers here we know that flora <laughs> is an orphan and and she doesn't even remember how she was orphaned and that was quite common at in those slums at those times that there were there were a lot of children who didn't have families and unfortunately that was the way of life um because yeah. of the terrible conditions that they were forced to live in and the kind of journeys that they'd had to make to get to where they lived and the kind of work that they were offered and also an incredible opium crisis yeah. um so she is very actually disconnected from her her romani heritage in that way um 
And I very deliberately didn't write too much of it into the book because I wanted her to have that feeling of drifting, of not feeling connected to place and, and not knowing herself so that she can have this journey in the book. And I think it reflects a particular period of time that was true for lots of industrial revolution children, oh, that yeah. they might lose a lot of themselves mm -hmm. in in voyages or in journeys like the the Irish immigrants who came to Manchester they might lose family members to to you know the um to gin like gin was a big problem in Manchester and gin addiction they might lose them to factory work so many children lost their lives in in mills and you might lose your sense of self in that process um and oh, yeah. sense of heritage and sense of being and so then maybe you cling to what you do know so for Flora that is being a New Yorker being from five points, being from this place. Um, and I think that was kind of important to me for a narrative that's sort of about remaking yourself. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what a freak show is in a way or or any kind of theater or, or that kind of thing is about choosing an identity and then selling it, <laughs> really. <laughs> no, totally. I, I think that's, once again, uh, to like tie all these things that we've been talking about together, it's uh, there's definitely like a beauty in this book about how how ugly once again, at, at a most meta-narrative uh, meta level, capitalism functions as, in an alienating way and how then that generates taboo and how that forces sex workers and certain groups of people into a certain circuit that then makes them very easily to be abused and like literally railroaded into a path of life, which then literally doesn't give them a way out. I think that you have done that fact very beautifully in your book uh, without spoiling anything too much, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I think... A big thing in my research was just how much the Industrial Revolution changed these cities. And sometimes, you know, the whole thing with like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? My thing is, <laughs> oh, no. how often do you think, how often do you think about the fact that at the beginning of the 1800s, they were using candles and had to shit outside? Yeah. <laughs> and by the end of it, they had indoor electricity and indoor plumbing and that everything was completely different. The difference between the start of the, the Long Regency and the end of it between 1801 and 1901 is just absolutely astonishing. And whilst that technological, technological advance is so rapid and, and incredible, the way that it churned up people's lives in this industrial kind of more of... Uh, you know disability and addiction and and poor housing and crime and gang violence is ridiculous it's actually incredible when you start to think about it and when you start to look at cities like New York or like Manchester it's very hard to get away from the fact that the the monster of the mill or the trains or whatever was the big industry of that time is basically just eating humans and it is a monstrous oh, yeah. thing and it is kind of it's it's a very gothic notion and that kind of i think for me was inspiring and horrifying at the same time you know the industrial the industrial revolution is like this gothic monster that eats people's lives oh yeah <laughs> no but in a painfully real way as well like it, there's this there's always the famous stories about like little children losing their arms in like sewing machines and like you know there's a real cannibalistic function and you know that, mm. that's just totally correct like and i feel that that's yeah. one of the most egregious things that like either gets i i don't know how to say this but like 
very quickly passed over. Like, oh yeah, and there was some suffering. Anyway, Oliver Twist, right? No, it's just like I don't know. It feels like it's done by like very quickly, or uh, and is then immediately like zoomed out into like, oh look, but isn't uh, isn't isn't these ballrooms great or something? Like once again, this like (laughs) the thing that Dark Academia fans are also like guilty of, and so forth and so on. I I, I'm really happy that (laughs) we we do spend as much time of the uh, with the ugliness of the time, if you will, for lack of a better word. Yeah. uh, As we do in this novel. Yeah, we have to sit with that suffering for quite a while. It feels a little bit like it was owed. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I spent so much time researching these slums, Five Points in New York and uh, Angel Meadows in Manchester, and so much time learning about the lives of the people. Yeah, and and I spent so much time learning about them, and they they were both both slums were paved over entirely by the city, cities the various cities to make way for like municipal parks or city buildings, and it it's almost like there there is this huge graveyard in these cities that is so is un- unacknowledged now and that's obviously the way history works you yeah. know you walk around mm-hmm. rome you walk on the ruins of caesar that's what you do but um to me it felt like there was there needed to be space for these places to really live again because they, they there's no monument to them now in new york or manchester in that way you can't walk to any nobody's preserved these places they've been opposite of preserved they've been squashed out of history because they are so unsanitary or unpalatable or or you know were just full of poor people you know (laughs) so they weren't important but you think about the lives and the buildings that were lost and everything the memories that were lost in those places and yeah it felt important to give them space in the book yeah no definitely i i find it so interesting when we engage sincerely with the past and you, you, you always have this then this very um how to say this in a, in a way that makes sense <laughs> um since since uh since you're married to one of the hosts of, of uh, horror vanguard you're literally talking <laughs> to ghosts when we in- engage sincerely with history and i don't know i found that one of the uh, <laughs> a very interesting approach of of your book then uh the, the element of the knowing and it works in a very interesting spiritual or occult type of way for the character but also in this mera nar- narrative sense that when we look at history we are talking to ghosts in so many different ways yeah and and as readers especially uh it, it's very much hits different like what these different ghosts are saying representing and talking about like it's the, we get that context, which we wouldn't uh, as characters. Yeah, I mean, for in a first draft, every time a ghost appeared, and uh, I got this note from a writing mentor, they were like the ghost of past sexual shame. Oh yeah, like every ghost was related to a sexual horror. And the, and my my writing mentor was like, you might want to diversify that. Or is <laughs> is Flora's only gift that she talks to the ghosts of people who have been, you know, sexually assaulted? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I will want to diversify that a little bit. But I do think that there are there they are kind of sins that of and they are, and like to not to sound too red. But they are communist. They they, yeah. they are like capitalist sins, right? <laughs> These the the ghosts speak the sins of capitalism into <laughs> being. 
Um, they they because those are the voices that are not heard, right? Those are the those are the sins that we we push aside. And yeah, on in terms of it being ghosts, I'm my probably like my biggest writing inspiration is Hilary Mantel, and um, she in her wreath lectures talks a lot about how uh, to write historical fiction is to engage in kind of an act of transgressive resurrection. Oh essentially. yeah, mm. and she talks about it in a very spiritual way, but I do think that there is a horrific horrific element to that i guess maybe i'm a little bit more mary shelley minded in that <laughs> i tend to think that it's a good thing it's to be less yeah bringing up the bodies as as hillary would say it bringing up the bodies does mean that you are reliving something which maybe is horrible and awful and you are making it breathe again and there is a a, a disquiet and a gothicism in in making something breathe again because then you know the truth right and right. you have to live with the truth too and so you make history come alive as truthfully as possible but then you have to live with the truth of what you've made come alive which might be really really scary or really unsettling or really disquieting um but i suppose that's kind of the nature of historical gothic that's why what we we kind of do <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I think that's exactly, uh, you, you worded it beautifully. And it's also something that I always spend a lot of time talking about when we talk about like historical fiction. And it a way to engage, once again, responsibly is something that we have uh, been talking about quite a lot. Like how do you uh, engage responsibly with history, which is not as dry cut as a thing. And it's not that we're looking to formalize it, like, oh, it has to be this, it has to be that. Mm. But it it. Uh, a way to make it work and once again to echo essentially what you just said i'm so sorry but um a way that i always like conceptualized it is like making like the dead reach again into the living world and realizing how uh then first being depressed by how heavy of a weight it is to carry and then being immediately alleviated by it by realizing we are all carrying it together yeah. and it's yeah. it's i don't know i I feel that once again, this book engages very responsibly and very well with that sentiment that I feel is missing in a lot of historical fiction that's coming out. In, in my humble opinion, not, not speaking for anybody else here, they're listening, <laughs> but um, I feel is sadly missing in a lot of contemporary historical fiction. Well, it's a very gothic notion, isn't yeah. it? Like, all it's interesting because whenever uh, I think we're all kind of doing it on this call is like every kind of metaphor that we use about historical fiction and how to do it truthfully and, and knowingly and well, they're all very Gothic metaphors, you know, they're all about zombies essentially. <laughs> um, and they're all about that kind of, they're all kind of dark. And I think there's an inevitable darkness to it. Like you were saying, there's an inevitable weight to it. And the trick is to, find lightness in it too and that's that's it's so easy to write well it's not so easy it's not easy to write books ladies and gentlemen (laughs) um and all other people around the world it's not easy i swear um but it is easier to write a book a historical novel where everything is terrible all the time oh yeah it is harder to write a historical novel where things are mostly terrible and then some good things happen too and you bring and and that is a balancing act um and it's not one that I necessarily am very good at on my own like I'm I am very good at writing despair um (laughs) (laughs) and and 
and odd things and queer things and dark things and um my agent and sort of came to the book and was like yes I love it it's wonderful but I do think we need to put let's get some lightness in you know <laughs> let's bring some joy in um and that was much harder for me to write because I think when you have the burden of history you you think I need to do right by these people and I need to tell their stories yeah. but um as as compelling as it can feel to be like I must tell the true story of the terrible time that people who lived in this time had it is a disservice to those lives to only tell the terrible things because as we all know people who are living through terrible times right now and and living with terrible things happening to us there are the good things in our lives are just as as valuable and significant and such an important part of us so you know the balance is a is a struggle <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i i like it a lot because it's it's the thing that I despise in most dystopias. That's like, oh, it's pure misery. No one has any joy and that's it. Aren't you sad? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, even in even in 1984, he got laid. So, you know, <laughs> and that's a very miserable book. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I find it... Um... I find this notion very interesting because, uh, once again, from a modest people, there's this notion of uh, what is roughly called ancestor veneration. And it's not necessarily uh, like like it's happening in Japan, for instance, where there's little more deified element to it, but rather uh, more thinking about those who came before you. And it Mm. can be then utilized as a genuine interest in history as, uh, like, how do you responsibly realize that everything you are is a combination of millions everything you are is like a continuation of like all these people that have been before and this is an excellent staging point for like feeling this very odd uh but sincere connection with the past and the people who came before and i find it like um as someone who once again has this very broad ethnic cultural elements that he himself has never properly connected with uh i i got a lot about i got uh i appreciate the sense of like uh lostness that uh, your main character feels in this book because once again i i have felt not not anything like directly similar but like in a once again in a form meta contextual uh way there's this same eeriness maybe it's not the right word for it but i within that lostness i felt that same eeriness that is somewhat comparable somewhat i mean really roughly here but somewhat comparable to your main character and i do appreciate that quite a bit well i think it's we're at a state forgive me if obviously you can edit this out if you think it's inappropriate um (laughs) we're at a stage in kind of in publishing and perhaps in in culturally where we we really value uh, authentic stories, which is a wonderful thing. And it's so important. Um, And it comes from a place as well where there hasn't been enough diversity in voices. And so we're at a situation where there isn't enough diversity. So we're valuing authentic voices, but something that can happen that can tip the scales in a, in a different way is that we can say, well, this book is not for you or this uh, book is not about those things. When actually fiction and all books are are open to everyone. Oh, yeah. And just because, for instance, somebody has not experienced, say, the lostness that comes with being a sexual assault survivor, um, 
doesn't mean that their own sense of lostness cannot be expressed in the book you no, know, and can't be expressed in the words. And I think that's something that as a society we need to hold on to is the fact that uh, books can speak on multiple planes to multiple people. It's, it's not necessary yeah. for you to have experienced the exact experience of the person who is writing the book or the character in the book for it to be relevant to you. Your re the relevance comes from inside you. And that's what, you know, I hope for the book is that Yes, there are going to be people who read it who say, I have nothing in common with these characters. I'm not queer. I, I can't speak to ghosts. <laughs> I'm not disabled. I, I've never been sexually assaulted. What is there here for me? And I would say, well, there's so much hopefully here for you. Have you been in love? Have you felt lost? Are you are you confused about where your future is going? Uh, do you do you really struggle to earn money? Um, yeah. You know, there are so many different ways that we can connect with the work that we find in front of us. Yeah, no, definitely. But I do feel that um, people might have, and this was initially maybe a good thing or it comes from a good place, but have become, for lack of a better word, and I'm sorry here, dear listener, but, but have become slightly overprotective of things. And this is, once again, not, once again, I cannot stress this enough, comes from a good place, comes from like uh, a, a way to, protect marginalized communities from harm from more dominant cultures and so forth and so on but has then kind of now functioned in a way that like, oh well it's not for me to read oh it's it has like has some deep-seated has planted some deep-seated fear in people which i'm not blaming any kind of broader cultural element of i'm just saying it's an unfortunate side effect of things and i do yeah once again i strongly agree with what you just said and like you know uh <laughs> We should always, I think actually it's a good thing to strive and read things outside of a comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, not too much, obviously, but, you know. I, I think it's 100% true. And I think, I don't, I don't know if I would ever have come out, uh, honestly, without queer fiction. Oh, yeah. And queer fiction mm -hmm. was something that in the culture I grew up in, which was evangelical Christian, was something that I absolutely should not have been reading. You know, that's something yeah. that, I, I was very lucky in the sense that despite the culture that I grew up with, my parents never said I couldn't read anything. You know, they, they were very, they were not trying to stop me from reading anything, which was good. You know, they weren't like those kind of Christians who were like, you can't read Harry Potter or anything <laughs> like that. But there was a sense as well that if a book was about gay people, then it obviously wasn't for me. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so crossing that boundary was what enabled me to come to know myself and to come out as queer um, much later in life, but to, to understand my own queerness. And so it, it does make me sad, the idea that there might be people who might uh, look at this book and say, well, straight people can't read it because it's about queer, queer people or people who don't read Gothic novels, they shouldn't read it because it's a Gothic novel. You know, I, when we get too tight with our genres, I think we're, we're, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're doing a tremendous disservice to our own ability to to adapt and to change and also to um to enjoy different things you know definitely <laughs> um so important yeah the, the crossing of these different boundaries it's allow us to both discover ourselves discover others and understand others right like it's it, it, we're talking about fiction we're talking about art and, and its possibilities and even even in its own limits and its own 
the places it can't really cross as well. Like, it's still interesting. It's still positive. And when done with sincerity and, and the dedication and care, like the knowing, it we, we certainly hope so. It, it can only achieve a positive result. Yeah. And in a way, historical fiction is one of those biggest boundaries because what can, like, you know, what can I really know about the life of somebody who lived all those years ago? Like, I can never take myself it's not like I you know I could go to Japan and write a book about Japan like that's possible but I can't take myself back in time like it's the ultimate crossing of a barrier and um yeah I think that's what's so so wonderful about it is it it relies on people being open enough to empathize with a place that they can never go to and experience for themselves they can never go back in time it's not possible so they have to have the empathy and the imagination inside them to make that journey and when they do i think that that opens up something inside of us as humans and then that makes us possible to make other journeys it makes it more possible to be like well if i can read and enjoy a book about a tattooed mystic living in the 1800s then i can probably enjoy this book about this queer boy in contemporary London you know it allows us to to cross boundaries so yeah I hope so I hope so (laughs) no definitely maybe I'm being too optimistic I hope so (laughs) no I I 100% agree that's for me that's literally the most direct uh way I conceptualize art it is a reflective ability of like the most human aspect of us which is our endlessly protean way for creation of self-creation of changing of so forth and so on this is always, in, in my opinion, at least in good art, uh, directly reflected. Uh, and therefore, if you read, in my opinion, or witness good art, you then also change a little bit about yourself. And that's a good thing and not a thing to be feared, ultimately. And I don't know, I do think that... So yeah, once again, I, I thoroughly agree with that notion. Yeah, and it's it's the moment, it's the circumstance, it's the, the time to be optimistic about, about the book and, and what the book can do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes yeah definitely even if it is a gothic a gothic novel but there's there is such uh something me and my partner talk about a lot is the hope in horror and the hope in in gothicism and even if there is no hope necessarily for the characters there's hope because by exposing the horrible horrific thing you bring it to light and therefore you make people aware of it so the possibility of hope is always there even if there isn't hope for the characters there is hope for my characters <laughs> just so nobody's like going into this being like oh my god i don't want to read this book there's no hope for the characters there is hope for my characters um but yeah i think that's um something that's so important in the gothic is is the element of hope definitely i find this like fiction in general is at a very odd place and that doesn't necessarily have to be a negative way or rather what the thing makes the thing odd for me is exactly the cumulative elements of like good things and bad things at the same time or bad things may be a bit harsh but i was wondering uh to um move on a little bit what is like well rather i will <laughs> i will say how i've experienced this and you both feel free to uh uh tag along i'm very confused by this momentum of what is being called cozy fiction and it's this type of fantasy book that is like uh like oh well nothing bad ever happens and like you know it's it's a nice little adventure about these two fantasy races buying a coffee shop or something i don't know i haven't read it but um it's (laughs) and and my initial response is always the empathic one because i i 
I, I need that to survive. But um, it's it's always like, okay, well, I guess I'm happy. I live in a world where I can have both. But at the same time, this also feels very lazy. And like, I I am worried this is, uh, at the risk of sounding a bit grumpy here once again, uh, that this is indicative of a couple of things, namely that we are maybe slightly forming an unhealthy relationship with escapism a bit too much, which is once again, uh, sorry to hammer on about this, dear listener, but what <laughs> I appreciate about this book, it, it's it's a very responsible mixture of both, even though it does lean maybe a little bit too much to the other side, I don't know, but... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. There's a question, isn't there, about like escapism? Uh, Tolkien had a quote about escapism. He said that you know, of course, the Lord of Rings is an is escapism, and of course, it escapism is good because if you are a prisoner, then of course you would want to escape. Um, so I think the thing about escapism is it's very hard to make a blanket statement in any way, and I can see that that's the struggle here if what you're struggling with leon versus like the empathy versus the 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 wondering about it is because escapism relies so much on what the person is trying to escape from so what is what prison do they find themselves in that they need the escape so for some people my book is escapism but it just depends on what their prison is um when it comes to cozy it's it's so interesting, I think, Cozy. I, I'm not sure if we can talk about Cozy without talking about fan fiction. Oh, yeah. Which um, oh, yeah. <laughs> is a, 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 pl- a place that I, I partly come from. I have a big, big fanfic, um, accidentally. <laughs> Don't ask me about it. I <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I think be- before fanfic became as big as it is now in terms of our fan culture cozy meant something very different because i think cozy meant kind of agatha christie oh yeah and it was cozy crime so that's you know it's very focused on food it's a and usually a rural english village or some kind of cozy situation in whatever nation you might find yourself in uh there's bad things happen but everything's sorted out at the end and so that's cozy crime and that has a very strong lineage, especially in English letters, but is very popular worldwide. But the cozy that we sometimes see now, I think, comes more from the fanfic arm than it does from cozy crime, because there's a big thing in fanfic, which is just this, where you have your two favorite characters. Let's say, okay, say you sh- you ship Aragorn and Frodo, let's just say. <laughs> and so somebody writes 10,000 words where Aragorn and Frodo live together at Bag End and all they do is make dinner and fuck and do the gardening, uh-huh. right? I mean, that's and room for that's Sam, the, but go on. That, I mean, there should always be room for Sam. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, those are, those, that's 10,000 words of that. And people love it. People love it, I think, because for them, whatever prison they find themselves in, that's the escapism they need. Um, and they love the the fact that nothing dangerous happens. Um, there's a there's a famous, well, a very well known fan phrase from a particular fan artist on Tumblr called "Where the ending is unbloodied and forgiving," mm-hmm. um, which is basically this notion of like, what if we rewrote all the bad endings? You know, so what if you know whoever you want 
yeah. pick a pick a character who dies on anything you know like what what if thorin doesn't die in in the hobbit yeah and and what if what if boromir never has to die sorry all of my references are lord of the rings no that that's um, fine <laughs> I'm, I'm usually the only um, big lord of rings head on this podcast so frank uh, yeah. still has to read the second book so it's uh, it's fine I'm, i appreciate <laughs> it truly or even like really something modern. So like, what if Iron Man doesn't die? And so the question then becomes like, so what if they don't? What do they do? And oftentimes what they do is they don't go on another adventure where their lives are in danger and they're sad and they're full of angst and they're fighting demons. They they go home and they sit quietly yeah. and they have tender sets and that's all they do. And I think that's where Cozy is coming from now. It's no longer coming from the cozy mystery, which was sort of about the world is terrible uh, because people get murdered all the time. But here is Poirot or Miss Marple and they are going to effectively save the day and then there will be scones. You know, that's a nice rhythm to it. Now it's coming from the place of the presumptive world of the reader is Mm -hmm. terrible, not the fictional world. And that's what the book corrects, rather than the terror inside the narrative. Does that oh, make sense? Is as that making sense? I'm so sorry if it's no, not. no, 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 totally. Yeah, I think that's where cozy is coming from now. Whereas before, it was like cozy crime, terrible things happen, rich people get killed in a big <laughs> house in the country. Yeah, but somebody comes along and makes it all right, and justice happens. So the darkness is inside the book. It's there on the pages, but it's all right in the end. Whereas the new cozy that comes from fan fiction, the presumption is that the darkness is already in the world. So they they don't need to put it on the page. Yeah, It's in the world of the reader. So I think that's where the shift is. The shift is from the text to the reader. And that's how we've ended up where we are with cozy sorry i didn't realize i could talk that much about cozy no no i love it um <laughs> it's definitely because uh, I, I love my friends but they they are also very into it and to reiterate the notion that we said in the beginning of the episode like i always feel like this dog took the shit on the carpet that like that that says like well maybe we mm-hmm. shouldn't enjoy it like i don't begrudge you enjoying it but maybe we shouldn't enjoy it directly like that and i think this notion of fan fiction is very important mainly because there's also a shift in fan fiction, I've been told by people who read a lot of it, at least, is that, like, originally it functioned as a way to make sense of the text. That's what, or, well, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily the only singular origin point of fan fiction. We shouldn't approach fan fiction as like that. But um, <laughs> at least good fan fiction uh, functioned in a way to make <laughs> sense of the text that was there. And now I feel like alongside a couple of other things, that has maybe also indeed changed because the only thing we're trying to make sense of is our horror situation right now, not so much the text itself. Mm. And I do think you, yeah, you, you. Yeah. That's possibly why people. So I, my partner, aside from being the horror vanguard is a, as a literary critic and he is always engaging with um, something in a critical manner. And I think we've definitely both felt a lot of pushback in the last couple of years from people feeling like you can't critically engage with certain things even even marvel movies like <laughs> marvel movies will not accept critical reads of of those of those things and i think part of that is because of what we were saying about so with cozy for instance because the darkness is not in the text 
Yeah. And because the the escape is not in the text itself, if you look at a cozy mystery, the escape is in the text. It is relying on the escape being inside the person. So then, of course, it's a deeply personal thing. If you like to read cozy, what you're doing is essentially self-soothing. You know, this is a, it's an emotional thing. You're and and we all use fiction to self-soothe. Oh, yeah. I mean, who doesn't? That's why parents read stories to children at bedtime. Um, but if you if you are if you are unable to critically engage with it, then perhaps that it it's because it's got such a deep emotional connection. That's why people are maybe resistant and have this stop shitting on my cozy carpet, you dog <laughs> vibe to them because because it is too emotional for them. The cozy the cozy is making them feel cozy and making them feel safe and making them feel secure in a big wide world which they are finding too much right now so when it that's probably the problem is that some of us are approaching a book like a literary text and going well I'm going to critically engage with it and I'm going to criticize the cozy but other people are approaching it like uh something that's integral or very important to their emotional regulation yeah and it's complicated when you uh essentially piss on people's emotional regulation tools at Mm -hmm. least that has been my experience (laughs) definitely i love how it i want to say this is on purpose the listener but i really can't but i love how it became full circle with uh, what we started off with about saying like oh you have to know yourself a little bit in order to responsibly engage with fiction and i do i once again i'm sorry if it sounds too uh too condescending or too confronting for anybody that's not my aim but uh if anything i'm speaking from personal experience that uh interacting with art becomes so much more relevant so much more meaningful when you know yourself and i do feel that or rather i am afraid for some people that by not knowing themselves they do submerge themselves in this coziness and maybe not engage with it as responsibly as they potentially could and once again i'm so sorry for (laughs) starting condescending here but uh, yeah, I do feel that's, I'm, I'm saying it in the best interest for everybody, even though it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> but this. Well, I think we, something we also have to consider is um, where we are, like globally as a culture, um, and how much the pandemic has impacted the way we oh, yeah. read. And there's a reason that so many people started reading during the pandemic. And, you know, the amount of like people who review on Goodreads and things like that has just, absolutely skyrocketed skyrocketed since the pandemic Mm -hmm. and so if you think about our reading habits have have changed from maybe from reading for education or reading for entertainment or reading for uh critical knowledge and critical expansion uh a lot more people now since the pandemic read for comfort read for solace read for emotional regulation and those needs and so we are getting to a point of diversion in how people read and but I do think it's um it is important sometimes when you can sometimes tell when somebody is very emotionally connected to something if they're not not able to engage with it critically and maybe we do need to like sort of be making a habit of when we're talking to people about books just sort of being like are you in a place to to engage with this critically yeah or are you are you not in a place for that because when people aren't in a place for that i I think they can 
feel a lot of emotional hurt when you when they think you are attacking a book that they love oh yeah which is uh which is surprising um f- for someone like me who has um a degree in literature and and has always kind of engaged with literature in a critical way but i also have as a child know that experience of of just being so in love with the book that you can't bear to hear anybody say bad things about <laughs> it um and i think that's a space that a lot of people are in since the pandemic oh, yeah. definitely i think there's indeed a broader context of um as well for uh people's more strongly identifying with products nowadays as well I can't really get into it because that will be a whole thing. I'm so sorry, dear <laughs> listener. But, but, but indeed, what Emma is saying, I think that as the um, the conjoining of those two things at, uh, at the same time has been, uh, well, <laughs> revolution of that and its consequences are a tragedy to the human race. But uh, other than th- other <laughs> than that, I, I also just really quickly want to say I do love that notion. Indeed, um, what you were saying about okay, well, what happens when the character doesn't die and goes home and does fuck all, really? And, like, is that a more dignified notion? And it's really funny because in terms of Lord of the Rings, uh, it, you, it become, the character becomes like, well, <laughs> it becomes a wraith with a body. It's like it slowly withers away. It's mm. Well, it becomes Frodo, uh, you, you, the person mm. that is kind of already dead but is kept, being kept alive by the poisonous magic of the ring and alpha magic and is actually kind of dead and needs to go on, on the ship to the other side. And it's, it's, I don't know, I do think that's a very brilliant way of looking at it. Um, because what they're trying to save is just not there, really. And it's also, mm-hmm. I, I totally get, once again, to approach it with a little bit more empathy. I know there's a lot of bad writing out there by edgy writers that are just like, look, isn't this sad? Isn't this like this killing off characters for the sake of killing them off? I know that's a, that's a real problem, and we can acknowledge that. But the answer is not the opposite. And I, I think that's very brilliantly navigated of you. Uh, I'm going to steal that. That's, that's all I'm going to say. I'm, gonna... yeah, I think <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But... I, have, I have a friend who um, is a dramaturg and is very good at understanding, like is very, has taught me a lot about kind of the essence of stories and, and why we, and kind of in a way, how as humans we have created these systems and these stories to teach us about ourselves, you know, how we, how we, how, how each religion tells a story, how mythology tells a story, how we build these stories about ourselves. And these stories that exist, these essential stories, if we look at like the story of Persephone, for instance, yeah. um, or any kind of like earth goddess uh, story, it, it, death is essential. Oh yeah. Um, because it's telling it's telling the story of the seasons it's telling the story of how everything dies in winter and and everything relives again in in march like it's it's important and it's an essential part of our our humanity and i do think that there there is something grounding for us as readers in stories that embrace darkness as well as light because it's it's how the world is in yes. in the 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 brutal nature of it all and I think for me writing the knowing like it I wanted to write something that reflected the brutality of life but also reflected the light of it um and I, I don't think a cozy version of the knowing would ever exist <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what that would look like um and and a part of me goes if you are writing a cozy Victorian story 
then you are writing a straight up fantasy. It's as much a fantasy as Middle Earth. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> it, it, to write a, a cozy Victorian story where there is no hurt is to write a story about a white man hanging out with another white man <laughs> in a very, very, very nice house with lots of disposable income. Because that's the only way that somebody could be cozy for eternity in the Victorian <laughs> but it doesn't historically exist so and I I respect people's right to write that fantasy as much as I respect the right to create Middle Earth or the Seven Kingdoms or any of those other places you can do that but it it is a it is a straight up fantasy yeah no I think that's that's a great point to round it off a little bit um I do find that sentiment online like quite a lot there's this uh <laughs> hmm once again, trying to approach it with genuine uh, empathy, but there's this genuine vitriol about like, oh, you, you can write anything and you choose to write about sexual violence. I'm like, well, that's, to me, oh, fills me with a lot of feelings because once again, uh, I've, I've worked with people who have been subjected to that. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I once again have also felt very protective of that and therefore not engaged yeah. always responsibly with fiction that features uh, sexual violence, which I've never, which now... I'm happy to say that I can deal that with it a lot better because I, once again, did not know myself and was not doing the homework for myself and dealing with myself and, and you know, the memories I had of those shared experiences with me. And, um, but I now feel, <laughs> uh, well, let's just say discomfort towards the notion of anger being directed towards people who write about it as if they are all one group of people. This hasty generalization towards it, I find, well, I hate to say it, but I find offensive to people of victims of sexual assaults, as if they, they there's yeah, always. I'm, Sorry, go on. Yeah, I'm I'm straight up offended over here. I'll be honest. <laughs> like I, I when I see that anywhere, I just I just part of me thinks, how fucking dare you? Yeah. Like how how fucking dare you say that there are no books that that I deserve to not have that? Yeah. Like. This this is my my life, my choices, my experiences are my own. If I want to write about something that happened to me in a fictionalized way, that's my absolute god given right. No one's making you read it, hun. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no one's making you read it. We live in an age where it is is almost impossible to come to a text or a TV show or a movie with no idea what's going to happen in it. Wikipedia exists. Um, Goodreads exists. I mean, it's, it's nobody is forcing anybody to absorb any content. There is a consent involved in simply opening a book and there's there's knowledge in that. And yes, sometimes you can read things in books that are triggering or surprising and upsetting and we've all had that experience like i've had that experience and that can be really really hard to manage it doesn't mean the thing shouldn't exist right it doesn't mean the thing is bad yeah whatever happened to you that triggers those feelings inside of you that was bad you know i i have my own experiences and i've read things in the past and i've been triggered by them it's not the book's fault whoever the person who did the thing to me it's it's their fault yeah. They did the terrible thing. And the writer did not set out to write a terrible experience for me. They set out to write their book. Um, so, yeah, I have I have so little time 
I have so little time for that. And I think it's uh, a way of just gatekeeping oh, yeah. people's experiences um, and saying, if it makes me uncomfortable, then I shouldn't have to look at it. And the answer is, you know what, babe, you don't have to look at it. Mm-hmm. No one's making you, uh, you know. Yeah, we. It seems yeah. to, it seems to me that these uh, well, people who feel this way um, struggle with holding two things at the same time in their mind. Like, yes, it has been abused. Like, it has been uh, used, utilized badly by. I would say uh, you have a point if you want to raise that point about it has been maybe badly utilized by straight white men or straight men, um, and but with sexual with regards to sexual violence with regard to like killing off characters, yes. We can talk about that. We can have a genuine discussion about that and how which factors might factor into that. But then goes on to be accelerated into wholesale denouncement of these elements in stories. And I'm like, well, why? Once again, why are we struggling with this this false dichotomy of like yes and no and like oh this is allowed oh no this is not allowed mm-hmm. and once again i am and i'm doing this too often on this podcast and i'm so sorry dear listener but i'm once again asking for a little bit of nuance at least a little bit like i don't know yeah i think it's i i am very uncomfortable in a, in a situation where we say that some books shouldn't be oh, yeah. um or shouldn't have been written i think that's that's a very uncomfortable place to be in because as as humanity we are not perfect we are awful (laughs) we are colonizers and 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 we have done terrible things throughout history and we do terrible things now there's a genocide happening in a country at the moment well multiple countries (laughs) but one predominantly that is the most televised genocide in in the history of the world and yet it's still ongoing and the idea that all fiction and all writing that humanity creates will be good it seems to be flawed we we are not good we will create bad things and it's it's and it's okay that we create those bad things because then we get to say that they're bad right we get to mm-hmm. we get to hold our own judgment as humans on art that's created and you can say you know what i don't think this is a good piece of art if you don't like it that's fine but it doesn't mean that you get to say it should never have existed. Yeah, I have a very historical mindset to these things. I think because I read historical fiction and because I write historical fiction and I look back at historical documents and, and look at historical works and and some of them are awful, you know, <laughs> and are products of their time and re- represent the limited thinking of the people who lived in that time. But should they just be done away with because they represent that limited thinking? No, in a way, we should hold on to them even faster because they show us how limited our thinking can be and how terrible we have been in the past. We We owe future humanity a thorough documentation of ourselves in a way. Yeah, I think we are very poor at dealing with our emotional and therefore also intellectual recoil of the past. And yes. like you know, but it's such a disservice and we have to keep that at the forefront of our mind, I think, that this is not, you know, this impulse is once again, it's an impulse. You need to like deal with that. You need to overcome that. And by yeah. all means, like once again, know yourself in like the amounts of uh, the amounts of quantity you can deal 
with with the past. Like that's fine if you want to take small steps. I will never begrudge you for that. I will never like mock anyone for that. But <laughs> like to like once again go for this wholesale denouncement is it's weird, man. I, I, I will stop complaining about it because I could go on forever. <laughs> I, I think I think I get um, what I like to call evangelical whiplash oh, yeah. when I hear the, that kind of thing. Um, because I grew up in a culture that was very clear about certain things that you that should not exist. You know, certain people who should not exist, certain types of content that shouldn't exist, certain TV shows, certain movies, things that were just wrong or evil or should not have been and so I get very twitchy when it comes up in liberal discourse because I I've already lived through that and I I don't really want to go back um I don't want to go back to a place where people say don't watch that tv show it's just wrong or it's just bad don't 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 even try to engage with it it's so bad you shouldn't even try to engage that feels to me very, uh, very reminiscent of the places that I've come from. Uh, you know, I, we once had a preacher who just decried Game of Thrones entirely, <laughs> all of it. Like, you uh-huh. know, it was kind of blacklisted. And I, I don't, I remember living in that culture of like certain content and certain ex- books and certain things just being blacklisted. Like, not only were you not to engage with it, you were to audibly decry it as loudly as possible and encourage others to not engage with it and that what that's what makes me a little bit twitchy in some liberal discourse today is when i when i feel that coming then i'm a little bit like oh oh i don't i don't what are we doing here what are we doing um and why are we doing it and who are we trying are we trying to protect anyone who are we trying to protect and why are we why are we doing these things? And if I can, if I can get to a point where I can see that we are trying to protect a group of people who have been marginalized and and deserve protection um, from an oppressor, then I I can generally get on board with it. But if I can't see that, can't see that, then I'm then I get a bit twitchy. Yeah, no, it's it would be something fair. else if they were just trying to protect you from season eight, but that's that's not what's happening there. Um, it's, it, it, <laughs> they're really not no it's, it was definitely the boobs everybody it was boobs the evangelicals did not like the boobs yeah and it's and they also blow up the Vatican but anyway it's um or like whatever <laughs> it's called in that universe but it's um I, I do find it very interesting because there there seems to be a very strict adherence to this perceived moral philosophy without having a very broad sense of uh, ethics of moral philosophy of not wanting to engage with that and it seems to result in well good or a virtuous slash good art is equal is identical to a good human as saying what we find virtuous in humanity or in a human is also directly transferable into the art and i'm like well no <laughs> maybe maybe don't do that i don't know that's a bit weird <laughs> it's- yeah it's it's kind of scary i think um as an artist to think that people will do that because um whilst like you, the art that i create is a reflection of who i am it's not a reflection of all i am every day all the time so for instance this book the knowing was written a long time ago now in terms of my life um i finished it in like 2018 2019 for the first draft you know so the mm-hmm. writing process was a long time before that 
So when I first sat down to write this story about these characters, I was a very different person to the person I am now. And the idea that somebody is going to come along and make assumptions about me based on something that they've read is is a bit worrying. To me, it feels very reflective of like of celebrity culture. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not calling myself a celebrity, just to clarify. <laughs> the way that we make assumptions about people, people's lives and who they are based on the little information that we have about them, however it's received to us by like books, TV, and things like that. Um, and it, it's, it's strange and a little bit uncanny. I really don't want people to... I don't know what people would assume about me based on the knowing. I don't know that I'm... I really like ghosts, I guess. I guess they think I'd like ghosts, oh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know what they would think. Um, it's it's worrying. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a strange thing, the way that we are conflating art and artist. And I understand where it's come from because it's come from a lack of accountability oh, yeah. um, from, from the publishing community, but also, you know, from society broadly and the way that we have elevated we have pushed aside things that we know about people who maintain a certain type of celebrity status. Um, and we've pushed that aside in favor of calling them artists. And we can all talk about various film directors and things like that. But yeah, I think it, I think it has more to do with how we venerate people than it has to do with how we respond to the work. And because it has more to do with how we venerate people, I think it has more to do with capitalism than anything else because oh, yeah. if people weren't building up masses amounts of income would they receive the same veneration maybe not you know if we all had universal basic income if we were all uh you know if art was being put out into the world not for monetary gain but for enrichment of society like would we venerate people the same way probably not so yeah I'd, I think we can blame capitalism for this one, actually. <laughs> yeah. As always, we have arrived at the, at the point we usually arrive at. Uh, how strange. <laughs> I'm afraid this keeps happening to us. I don't know. It's, uh... wonder why. Yeah. Well, uh, I could keep talking about this forever, but is there, is there <laughs> anything, uh, looking at the time, maybe we can uh, summon up some closing thoughts? I don't know. Yeah, let's, let's do some summoning. <laughs> it's appropriate for the book. Let's summon something. Let's summon Frank. <laughs> And uh, for the listeners that were listening, uh, I think I was talking too much. Uh, Frank was having connection issues in case uh, they do some amazing editing and you <laughs> you didn't catch on to that, dear listener. So it wasn't uh, me just running my mouth as usual, even though that is a problem. But uh, <laughs> it is it is Frank having connection issues, dear listener. So I'm so sorry. Frank making an absolute valiant attempt to stay on the call <laughs> at all costs. Really little titanic effort here. Yes, absolutely. Th thank you, Emma. Thanks again. Um, I'm going to say this before the episode is done again and afterwards, but thanks again for everything, with the patience especially. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, I, I do think that th this has been a, a great discussion in terms of how, I don't know, how art, how media ends up connecting with ourselves, both in terms of creating it, relating to it, reading it, critiquing it. It doesn't stop connecting to us. Uh, it is related to a personal element and we we need to engage with that in, in some way that it's not, uh, there's no pure objectivity, there's no pure separation and that's fine. It, it is about knowing how we understand these books, 
these processes and how we engage with them and the broader relationships involved in the process, i.e. capitalism, as the knowing and this conversation has revealed to us all. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Emma. I don't know if there's anything... It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, I think I think everything that we've talked about is super interesting. I think yeah. I think my like my final point point is like the knowing like has a trigger warner warning in right. the front of the book as we talked about at the beginning, and I think that's so valuable and important for the book. And I don't think anything we've said kind of takes away from that. Definitely, because we're not mm-hmm. really talking about people's right to not know what's in a book. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not advocating for the the author or the publisher's right to always surprise us with the contents of a book yeah. i think it's it's more a discussion about uh who we say can speak about issues and how they can speak about them and what it means to allow people the freedom to uh, write and communicate communicate about their own experiences in a way uh that's that's artful really yeah yeah definitely um well based on that once again uh feel free to uh come back anytime if you want to talk about anything literary or whatever yes. you uh, <laughs> we're lovely to have well on. i i'm under contract for some more books yeah. so you know there's, there's whenever you more write something coming. else that's also fine <laughs> just letting you know you're welcome whenever that's that's all oh i'd love to come back i'd love <laughs> to come back excellent thank you so much for listening everyone uh thanks again emma And we'll see everyone very soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.